0: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
1: It's January of 1867, when you first catch sight of her. And you love her as quick as that. Eliza. You are a 17-year-old boy from Cornwall. And although you know there are prettier out there, and richer, and younger, Eliza's got something none of them have. She's yours. Some of the other men laugh at her. Some of them scoff. Some of them turn away in disgust, but not you. You walk right up to her, and one of the older men puts a hand on your shoulder. She's no good, boy. You brush by him, and on to the ship. You've been waiting your whole life to sail these waters, and Eliza, old but freshly painted, her three masts gently teetering back and forth against the Cornish sky, is your way to the ocean, to the winds, to peace, and freedom and adventure and adulthood. On deck, you can barely contain your excitement. And in that, you are thoroughly alone. The crew around you are hung low like loose sails. It isn't the casual indifference of experience. It's something sadder, darker. And it's the same on shore. You notice when you run to the side to wave elatedly at the people watching from the docks. You've seen off hundreds of ships from that dock over the years, wishing them well, wishing them luck, wishing to be not on the dock, but exactly where you are now. But the folks looking back at you are quiet, still, and somber. You see one older man with a big, bushy beard shake his head slowly, and then drop it to his chin. The Eliza shoves off with you at her top sail, working the line. There is a commotion on deck. The bosun tells the captain that one of the men, Larry, is not on board. Larry, who only fifteen minutes ago had put his hand on your shoulder... He must have made a run for it, the bosun guesses. Then Larry's the only man of us will be alive in a week, whispers one of the mates. And he was right. The Eliza set off on Friday, January 3rd. By Sunday, she'd be lost, with all hands. And no one but you, not the crew, nor the captain, nor the ship's owner, nor the people looking on solemnly from the dock that day, expected anything else. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, shipwreckless. I can tell you what happened to the Eliza. That a wind broke her fore and mid-top masts. That she attempted to make her way to St. Ives. That she eventually laid anchor, hoping to outlast the weather before it finally whipped her back to the open sea. But that doesn't get to the why of the Eliza and it doesn't help at all to explain the larger trend of which she was but a very small part. The story of the Eliza is exceptionally unexceptional. In 1867, 2,513 cargo ships went down off the coast of England, with a total of 1,333 hands. That's to say nothing of ships traveling to Europe, or the Americas, or India, or even cross-channel to Paris. And 1867 is as unexceptional a year in this regard as the Eliza was a ship. Every year around this period laid claim to a similar number of wrecks and a similar number of casualties. But it wasn't always that way. Complete records of ships foundering are almost impossible to come by, and trust me, I've looked, but there are tidbits available. Look at the coast of Florida, for example. In the whole of the 17th century, there were 67 wrecks. In the 18th, 241. And the 19th, 1,045. Those numbers deserve an asterisk. As the Florida coast and the Caribbean both grew substantially as trade waters over the centuries, there were more ships around to sink in the 1800s than the 1700s, but not five times as many. And similar trends show around the world. Shipping was increasing in England, in France, in America, but more ships were sinking than were being added a lot more. In short, from the late 1700s up through the 1870s, in spite of technological advances, in spite of increased lifeboat presence, in spite of every reason to expect the opposite, sailing was getting increasingly dangerous. Pirates? You want it to be pirates, right? That's okay. That's that's only natural. Everybody loves pirates. But no. It wasn't about pirates. Or maybe you're thinking it's a question of a century and a half of increasingly bad weather. Probably not, because that's ridiculous, but at the time plenty of people, including the English Board of Trade and the National Lifeboat Institute, thought that might be it. Nope. Not weather. Not pirates. Not increased traffic. Not steamliners, Not crew changes or increases in drinking or anything so obvious. By the mid-19th century, Hundreds of ships were sinking unnecessarily every year and taking hundreds of sailors with them. And to grasp the germ, the beginning of the trouble, that fly the old lady swallowed, we have to travel east from Cornwall to London and back to the 1680s, to this place. A coffee shop. In 1688, there are around 80 coffee shops in London, but only one of them is of interest to us. The one on Tower Street, owned by George Lloyd. In some ways, coffee houses of the 17th and 18th centuries were the same as they are today, which is that they were just as much places to hang out for hours and hours as they were places to actually, like, drink coffee. But instead of being populated by freeloading teenagers and deluded would-be novelists, the old coffee houses of London were meeting spots for various tradesmen, politicians, and merchants. Mostly merchants, who would do their business, take meetings, eavesdrop, all on the public grounds of the coffee shops. So if you were the owner of a coffee shop, your success depended as much on what information people could get there as how good the bean juice was. And that, it seems was the genius of George Lloyd. There wasn't much written about the quality of his coffee, no ads run featuring his brewing or roasting expertise. In 1692, he moved his shop to Lombard Street, where all the big boys of the coffee world played, and began to dominate them all, entirely through his reputation of being well-informed and savvy at all things business. Instead of running ads in newspapers, he started printing his own newspaper. A two-page broadsheet called Lloyd's News that came out twice a week. A typical edition covered a broad range of subjects in brief. News from the legislature, international headlines, rewards for lost dogs. Lloyd's News was shut down after a few short years. Press freedom in 17th century England was less than robust. But in that short run time, you can see the trend forming. More and more of the print gets taken up by international news, trade, and ports, Over the course of its short life, Lloyd's News increasingly focused on all things related to one thing, shipping. And the same trend held for Lloyd's Coffee House. There was a coffee house for government types and one for auctioneers, but Lloyd's Coffee House was the place for all things maritime, sailors, captains, merchants, and ship owners. Here was a place to gather a crew, to charter a boat, to haggle over cargo. Most of all, And most importantly, here was a place to insure a ship. This coffee shop is the humble origin of Lloyd's of London, one of the grandfathers of the modern insurance industry. By the 1730s, Lloyd's was the place not just for all the news about shipping, but for marine insurance. In 1734, Lloyd's List, the descendant of Lloyd's News, a journal now entirely about the shipping community, appeared. It's still printed today. Are you lost? Remember, we're here to answer why the Eliza and several thousand other ships a year were needlessly lost throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, and yet we've only made our way from coffee to insurance. Don't worry, we're closer than it seems. In the 1750s, a new insurance practice came about, birthed right in the middle of Lloyd's. It worked like this. A man's got a ship and a setup to deliver something, say, iron from Cornwall to, I don't know, cardiff it's a good deal and he stands to make a bunch but only if the ship makes it to port if it sinks he's screwed so he needs some insurance he walks into lloyd's with papers explaining the gains and potential risks as well as the worth of the ship then investors there sign up to take portions of that risk which they agree to take on if the ship sinks they have to pay up for their portion but in exchange, they're paid a fee from the premium as soon as they write their names under what they're taking on. Write under. Underwriters. Ships are expensive things, and their cargos are hopefully valuable. So if you're an investor, you probably don't want to put up the whole of the investment on your own underwriting allowed bankers to spread out the cost of ensuring a journey across smaller, more digestible, and profitable bits. And it allowed ship's owners and merchants to more easily protect their property. Everybody wins. Well, not everybody. It's in this former coffee shop that the fate of you, you, 17-year-old overeager sailor from Cornwall, you, and your fellow mates and the Eliza herself were sealed on a sheet of paper underwritten by some motley gang of investors and bankers. I should note that there was no 17-year-old overeager sailor. Or maybe there was, but if so, it's a coincidence. He's a device. The Eliza, though, was a real ship, and though some of the finer details are taken from similar sinkings, the thrust of her story is, in the main, accurate. And while I'm at it, noting this thing and that thing like so, maybe I should also note that this wasn't the first time the Eliza sank. In fact, one year previous, in 1866, Eliza foundered the first time under a different name. She was raised and sold cheap to new owners who did a minimal amount of repair work, slapped on a fresh coat of paint, rechristened her Eliza, and sent her off to work. No, I'm missing a step. Before sending her off to work, they had her underwritten. Between the repairs, the paint, and the paperwork, Eliza's owner put about 7,000 pounds sterling into their investment. But they insured her for 10. Any seasoned sailor, and indeed anyone used to watching the docks, could take one look at the ship and see she was doomed to go under. She sat low in the water. She was weary and broken on sight, She was being sent out to sea to die, an eventuality for which her owner would be richly rewarded. And her crew? Well, who really cared? But why would the crews get on at all, knowing what was in store? Well, for one thing, you needed the money. Anyway, by the time you, as a sailor, saw the ship you were assigned to, you'd already signed the contract. If you breached, you'd face jail time, because you didn't have the money to pay the fine and 19th century British jails were a death gambit too. So if it looked like a ship could possibly make the crossing as long as the waters remained calm, there was some tricky arithmetic for you to play. Sail and you risk death, but also a paycheck. Refuse and risk death and no reward besides. If the weather is calm enough, you might just make it. There are accounts of ships being escorted by police boats out of harbor while sailors pleaded to please be arrested. We're talking about murder here. Murder for profit. There's no more delicate way to put it. And there was a lot of murder for profit. In 1875, the secretary of Lloyd's said he didn't know of a ship in the last 30 years which had been voluntarily broken up. Between at least 1845 and 1875, the universal Practice was to sell off broken and unworthy vessels down the line over and over until they finally ended up in the hands of someone craven or desperate enough to shove a crew of men out to sea to drown. The sailors and coastal communities had a name for this. Coffin ships. The coffin ships, though, were only the most conspicuous and despicable tip of a much larger problem. Maybe you're already asking yourself, why would the underwriters go along with this? Because not only was this murder, but insurance fraud to boot. And fine, so the sailors didn't have the power to stand up to the owners and captains, but why not the bankers and underwriters? Well, let's go back to the Eliza and take a look. She sinks in 1866, is raised, sold, passingly repaired, repainted, rechristened, and then her owner goes out to an insurance broker to get a policy. First, the owner asks for £12,500, and the broker talks him down to an even ten, still 3000 more than he's paid for her. Then, the broker takes that policy to Lloyd's of London, the old coffee shop which is now England's biggest and practically its only marine insurance headquarters. Inside Lloyd's is a long, long room full of long, long tables and offices which the broker can pass the policy down. So, he's out to get 10 grand of underwriting, and the offer goes from one investor to the next. Some pass on it, while others agree to take on some small amount of the total policy. By the time it gets through the process, Eliza's insurance policy may have 50, even 100 underwriters, most of whom are in for only 50 or 100 pounds each, which means that when the Eliza goes down, no one individual person is on the hook for more than a bit of chump change. And just as an individual signs or passes on that policy, another comes down the line. Underwriters typically signed on for 20, 30, 50, even 100 policies every day. That each policy was underwritten by so many insurers, and each insurer underwrote so many policies made for a perfect storm of inaction. An underwriter didn't have time to investigate the ship or the owner he was insuring because he had to insure so many a day and if something happened to one, he was out so little money that there was no way to justify a costly investigation to make sure he hadn't been defrauded. Moreover, each individual underwriter was but a solitary person, probably fairly well off, but just a person. Meanwhile, the ships were owned by large freight firms or tremendously wealthy individuals who had every reason to fight any investigation down to their eye teeth and all the means to do so. And we're talking about shipwrecks here. How is someone supposed to go out and determine there was something fishy going on when the very thing they're investigating is literally fishy now? The boat is sunk. The crew is dead. How is an underwriter to prove his case? In contrast, the ship's owners can defend themselves by saying, the other underwriter's paid up. So what's this guy up to? And hey, the hypothetical underwriter already took the premium. He already said the ship was good to go. What does it mean if, after a ship is lost, he says, no, it was a fraud? It means that he didn't do his due diligence in the first place, because, as we know, he couldn't, or that he's trying to get stingy. On top of all of that, the underwriter has an active disincentive against challenging claims. The broker. The broker, who brought the policy in, gets paid on commission, so he's got no skin in the game other than to keep things going smoothly. And if an underwriter got a reputation for holding up claims, even if there was fraud that everybody could agree upon, was someone to pass over the next time you brought some money in, which of course would be later that day, and then again a little later, and again and again. Challenging claims was a good way for an underwriter to lose their entire business.
0: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
1: What we're looking at here is one of the earliest examples of what we now call a moral hazard. That is, a system which passes and diffuses risk such that it encourages greater exposure to risk and fraud. In the 1870s and before, very few people had a sense that economic systems could adversely affect behavior. Everyone was an individual free to do what they should, and the free market should have kept everyone doing good by themselves and others, and any deviations should have been punished and righted by that marketplace. But that isn't what happened. And while the coffin ships were the most striking example of the problem, they weren't the brunt. The bigger issue of the underwriting business was not the sanctuary and playground it gave for sociopathic murderers. It was the more subtle ways it pushed otherwise decent folk into taking things only a bit too far. Shipping freight was always a business that existed on a knife's edge. You wanted to move enough cargo on a ship that the charter would be profitable. But the more weight you put on the boat, the lower in the water it sat, the greater the risk there was of it sinking. And a sunk ship was a big loss, not only of the cargo, but of a very expensive bit of property, the ship itself. But in the 19th century, The equation of how much risk versus reward a shipper was willing to put on shifted, even if only slightly, because the risk no longer belonged to the shipper. Both the ship and the cargo were insured on someone else's dime, so why not try to load a bit more on? And since you're now paying insurance premiums, you have to put more stuff on board to keep your profits afloat. Coffin ships were one thing, one deeply despicable thing, but overloading was a far more common threat. In 1876, the Board of Trade noted 856 merchant ships wrecked within 10 miles of shore in conditions not much worse than a stiff breeze. If you made your life on the English coast as a sailor, or family to a sailor, or neighbor to a sailor, or at a business that in any way depended on the sailors, you knew this. You knew what to look for, rotted wood painted over, a hull slung deep in the water, freight gathered loosely on deck. You knew what it looked like when a ship was loaded to kill, but you didn't necessarily understand the specifics of how and why this was being allowed, let alone encouraged. And if you didn't have that close relationship with the sea, if you didn't live in a port or make your living on the ocean, you had no clue anything was amiss at all. Until... Samuel Plimsoll came along. Samuel Plimsoll wasn't anybody special. He'd been a successful brewery manager, which had made him pretty well off, and he'd been an unsuccessful coal merchant, which had made him pretty much destitute. He picked himself up into comfort again, but his time spent living in squalor among poor sailors left its mark on him. Plimsoll was in the fairly unique position of seeing what was happening at the port's and seeing what was happening at Lloyd's. But what made his position more unique was that he gave a shit. And boy, did he. He was elected to Parliament for Derby on a campaign to reform the shipping industry. Once seated in the House, he laid out for his fellow MPs exactly what was happening and how many English sailors' lives were on the line. And he showed them his plan to make things better. One... Give the Board of Trade power to inspect ships for seaworthiness. Two, draw on the outside of each ship a mark indicating the point at which it is sitting too low in the water to operate safely and make it illegal to embark without clearing the mark. And three, limit the amount a ship's voyage can be insured to by 75% of its value, thus keeping some incentivizing risk on the owner's head. Then he explained that with these reforms, he believed the evidence showed... They could save thousands or tens of thousands of lives. And he went further. He noted that there were no regulations on what sailors could be fed, which led to spoiled and rotten food being thrown away to them. He shed light on the practice of constructing ships with devils, nails with proper brass heads that concealed the true length of rusted, breaking iron beneath. He explained that there were no legal standards for how a ship must be built, which led to conniving shipwrights taking advantage of shipowners who didn't care anyway because they were insured by blinded underwriters. Parliament reacted with indifference and suspicion. They refused to believe that any of this could be happening, and even if it were, the market should work it out. And even if the market weren't, They said that government meddling in business would only make the problems worse, would only stifle freedom, would only create laziness and complacency. Maybe it was important that many MPs were ship owners themselves, or that many more of them were in the pocket of the shipping industry. Burdensome regulations will drive freight out of business. The companies won't be able to afford it. Parliament stonewalled Plimsoll for five years, so Plimsoll took his case to the people. In 1872 he published a book entitled R. Seaman, outlying his case and buttressed with letters, tables, statistics, and testimonies from here to kingdom come. He told the people of England that their government was unwilling and unable to take the steps necessary to remedy this great wrong and that it was up to them to save the lives and fortunes of their fellow countrymen. R. Seaman flew off the shelves. It was a public sensation. In 1873, with public protests at a fever pitch, Parliament agreed to enact a commission looking into the claims and causes suggested by Plimsoll. In 1875, the commission came back, affirming Plimsoll's argument and suggesting a bill be voted upon. But on the Parliament floor, Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli announced he was dropping the bill. Plimsoll flew into a rage. He screamed at his fellow MPs. He called them villains. He ran up to Disraeli and shook his fist right in his face. Disraeli moved to reprimand Plimsoll, but the public was with him. They wanted action, and they weren't going away. So in 1876, English Parliament brought and passed the Merchant Shipping Act giving inspection power to the Board of Trade and requiring all ships to bear a load mark showing when they are laden too deep for safe travel. That mark has since been adopted internationally by nearly every government and marine agency in the world. You can see it on the prow of each merchant ship sailing every lake, river, and ocean, a circle with a line through it, commonly called the Plimsoll Line. Within a scant few years, The number of wrecks plummeted, and the number of drowned sailors along with it. Plimsoll and the people of England rose together against moneyed interests, corrupt government, and entrenched market forces, and made the world a better, safer place. Go ahead. Draw the parallels. To Ralph Nader who took a very similar case to the car industry, which said nothing could be done, that the government should not, could not legislate to make cars safer. Ralph Nader, who took the problem to the American people and got us speed limits and seat belts, Or to the subprime mortgage crisis, where free market incentives drove troves of bankers, realtors, and stockbrokers to nosedive the global economy. Or, look... I don't want to get into a habit of speaking on current affairs. I really don't. I think the lessons of history are best served up without commentary. But as I'm working on this episode, there are a group of teenagers out there speaking to the people. A group of teenagers who just days ago witnessed friends and peers and teachers gunned down in their school and who snapped up as the adults of America have consistently failed to do, to point and scream and keen and shout as Plimsoll did, here is the problem. It is not a natural problem and it need not be a permanent problem if we the people can sustain ourselves to the effort of rectifying it. When those screams go out, when people call villain on the powers that be, the powers that be will always shrug, predictably. They will say, as they did to Plym that there is no problem. They will say that if there is a problem, there is nothing to be done about it. They will say that if the government starts telling ship owners what to do, the very heart of freedom will soon be extinguished. Do not be cowed. Do not be broken, do not believe it, and do not give up. Systems can change the nature of people, yes, but people, too, can change the nature of systems. From Chicago, Illinois, where last year, 625 people were killed by gun violence. This has been The Constant.